0: Yeah
1: and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was Paul Corder and Between the Road from his passing Stranger album from, I think, 1971. Paul has been described as pop's best-kept secret, so hopefully we can rectify that today. Paul, as well as being an artist in his own right, was a producer in the mid to late 60s for EMI and um, we'll be hearing some of his work with John Anderson of Yes!, also particularly well-known as a songwriter for the likes of P.P. P. Arnold and Roger Daltrey, as well as being in the band Dada with Elkie Brooks. Let's get into the show and uh,
2: hear my chat with
1: Paul. All right, Paul.
2: Hello, Jason. I thought about maybe the way we could, you know, from my point of view anyway, that would be the most interesting. All right. Would be to describe the fact that I've never been an institutionalized person. Yeah, I went to Victoria College in Jersey, which was like an old Victorian public school. Gosh. And when they cut your hair enough times, you wanted to just let your hair grow forever. Mm. If you started out with Between the Road, which is from the Passing Stranger album, which is a tough, biting, anti-social song about the weed. It says, I am the weed the council feeds with killer. Mm. Judges say your words of mind drops surround our trees built with wire and it's got Madeline Madeline Bell, uh who was it got on it It's got uh they were all singing with the stones at the time, so they Oh
1: Joey's Troy, yeah. Troy, yeah. it's
2: yeah. Yeah. Well Chris Spedding was on that album and I I put it together to go with the original members of the average white band you know, anyway, that, that's kind of an interesting story about how we went down to Olympic on spec and cut the album in 24 hours and mixed it and everything.
1: Mm. One of my um, previous people that I've spoken to was um, Al Stewart. And it was interesting. Oh, cause then, Al, yeah. Yeah. I know, re- 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 was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was about to t- ask you about that because he talked about the folk scene in the mid- mid-60s, Les Cousins, and and, right, I mean, and and I've heard that you were involved with yeah, that. Yeah,
2: Les Cousins. Yeah, Les Cousins in, uh, uh, was it Water Street? No, it was Water Street. Was
1: yeah, Neckert Woods. One of those
2: streets. Uh, a lot of people lived around there at that time. Yeah, because I had a a kind of publisher who had an office that he never used, and he let me use it as my uh, way of having a foot in Denmark Street, which was <laughs> really funny. Was it the sort
1: of. Folk scene that kind of led you to, to to start writing songs, which then got you
2: into publishing? Uh, yeah, I was always into folk music because it was. Well, I played acoustic guitar as well as piano. So it was easy to go out and have fun, go down to Les Cousins and play a few songs and uh, listen to Owl drone on because that was when we all left, actually. Because <laughs> <laughs> he'd get yeah. into some war or something. He'd written a song about the war oh,
1: yeah.
2: in, uh, in the Russian army or something like that. And we'd go, oh, Al's off again. We'll, we'll come back in 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, those are fun days, though. I mean, I always liked Al because he was so mm. so straightforward. You know, he wasn't pretentious. You could joke with him about anything and he'd accept it. One of the um,
1: the, the other people that I spoke to uh, very recently, in fact, just in in the past month, was Andrew Goldham, and you you were a you became a. Oh, I noticed. Yeah, that. You, you were a, a writer in the immediate. Yeah, lady.
2: I was right at the same time as I was with in Abbey Road as well, which was mm. it was really weird to be so much in the centre of so much. You know, I was like I, mm. I suppose there was some kind of family thing going on because my mother was a singer, my uncle was Laure- Lawrence Wright. And Lawrence was the first person to create piano copies. Lawrence Wright, he was the the originator of the music business, basically, because before music copies, there was only live performances. So he created piano copies for other people to play the songs. And that's what sold. And he would sell them from a market stall in Leicester. And my grandmother used to sing them for him because my grandmother was his relative from Leicester, and my mother was from Leicester as well. And my grandmother had 13 kids that she took on the road in the vaudeville era, and uh, they all played angels and stuff. So there were like seven singing daughters called the Lena sisters. And they all, um, my mother went for an audition for the Wizard of Oz, of all things, and when they couldn't get the final star, she wasn't going to make it, and so they sent people over to cast in England, and my mother went down there to, to try. <laughs> and another American director saw her and wrote his whole movie with my mother as the star. So it's amazing how all of these tributaries all came together, and then my uncle formed Chapel Music, and then uh, went on to own Melody Maker. So I suppose it was in my blood, yeah, it was destiny, that I, I ended up somehow right in the middle of everything. And uh, I mean, if it wasn't me and David Bowie comparing which song we were taking to what publisher... And there he was dressed in a duffel coat and his uh, university, you know, technical college look. Mm. Uh, you would never have guessed that he had such a great imagination. You know. Andrew Lloyd Webber and uh, Tim Rice, I didn't hit it off too well ways, But I was always, you know, I was over their place in Solo. They had a place in Solo with a big grand piano, I remember.
1: It seemed quite quick and you must have been quite young when... Uh, P.P. Arnold, another sort of former guest of mine Oh
2: yeah
1: (laughs) Had a hit with The Time Has Come
2: Yeah, that was amazing And and that was probably because How did I get involved with Andrew? I can't remember I think I just must have gone in there one day Hmm. And they had a music room Which I liked And so, uh, in fact, I did the first demo of Handbags and rags With uh, Mike Darbo, I think I I really enjoyed being in the thick of all that creativity. That was real fun. You never knew what was going to happen next. I think it was a very mystical time. That's why all these coincidences and great works of art and things were going on. There was an energy that was being generated by probably the tides of change because, uh, you know, people were up all night, you know, Smoking a hash and putting it in their baked beans. <laughs> I don't forget. Was it Biff Prince? He's a drummer with the Pretty Things, I think. And he was one night. He said, oh, I've got some really good stuff here. Uh, I'm going to put it on the baked beans. You want some?" I said, "Not really." <laughs> Steve Marriott. I mean, he was a friend of mine, real close friend of mine, and he. He used to give me his hand down and his hand me downs for, for clothes. He would like, uh, do a, a, fi- um, a, picture session with the small faces. And he'd say, Oh, I was wearing this great jacket. Super perfect. Paul. there you go. And he'd hand me a jacket and then I'd wear it for one of my EMI press photographs. <laughs> to be honest with you, I was never interested in their, and their, how famous they were. When Hendrix came to my dressing room at the Seven and a Half Club, I was about to play a gig, and the band was sounding terrible. We did a sound check, and I went, Oh, my God, this sounds terrible. (laughs) What am I going to do? And suddenly, it was Noel. So I'm playing with black geezer from the States. I said, Oh, really, a black geezer, huh? She says, Yeah, um, he must have told Jimmy that I was playing this show in Mayfair, because they were looking for a gate to showcase and they had everybody wanting to see Jimmy, but nowhere for them to play. So we just finished the sound check and in comes this guy with the same kind of afro that I had, because I just got out of hair, the musical. So I I we both looked at me, Whoa, this is fit much and we kinda of laughed at each other. Mm. And then he came over and he said, uh I need a place to showcase uh, to the music business. Mm. I said, well, where have you come from? He said, uh, New York. I said, i to come for a gig. Mm. <laughs> I was that naive. I said, well, that's incredible. He said, sure, sure, you can have tonight. I'm playing here all week. Of course, I was thinking to myself, thank God, I'm not going to be playing with this band tonight. And I certainly wouldn't get them up in front of anybody else's audience because Little did I know, if we'd have played alongside Hmm. him, we would have got booed off the stage. (laughs) He was fantastic. And what happened was that when he got down on his guitar, like he was making love to the guitar, three people swiveled off their seats and got on their knees. Townsend, Clapton, and McCartney. Hmm. The three of them all at the same time. And I standing right behind them thinking to myself, wow he must be the high priest Hendrix must be the high priest because they're all on their knees and the story was written after them I used to see him every so often and he'd always try to impress me about how many, how many chicks he'd pulled <laughs> he always did this kind of clucking thing with his arms like he was like the Jumbo the Rooster <laughs>
1: Mentioned briefly your your time as a producer at EMI and right, you involved um, much of the small faces in some of your productions, didn't
2: you? I did actually, yeah. I, I had the, there were my rhythm section on a lot of stuff. I mean, uh, that was the best rhythm section around. I I was quite proud to have them play. And uh, <clears throat> but so so much Steve, he didn't come and play. I had uh, yeah, I think I had Kenny Jones. Ronnie Lane and uh, one other guy. Ian McLagan. Ian McLagan, yeah. And uh, it's a pleasure. When they played something that I'd written, it was always sounding great. It's one of your singles that
1: I don't think you wrote, but you certainly produced, that's got kind of that real sort of harmonic edge, and that's uh, Sarah Jane by Andy Foray. Is that something you recall?
2: Oh, I produced that. That's very good, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He sent me over a copy of that, and it's really beautiful, that song. And he sings it extremely well, so I was really impressed.
0: First a glance, so sublime There's no chance to decline Ecstasy, your name Sarah Jane Find a love of my own No more hours spent alone Fantasy, your name Sarah Jane Tell me why she has gone, for I'll never understand how I cry for this ended love that never began. Try to sleep, close.
2: Uh, that kind of hypnotic thing about the West Coast oil tragedy of 68. Seagull with oil on your wings can't fly away. It's sort of like a uh, beautifully
1: kind of classical stuff. That became famous through the Love Sculpture version.
2: Yeah, yeah, Love Sculpture. I love Dave Evans. What a great person. Such a genuine, good-hearted man. That was interesting in some new stuff, though. That song that I told you about living life with soul, about a 60s guy that wakes up in the 2000s and realizes that all of the beautiful uh, elements and ideals of the 60s had all been sort of lost. Oh, yeah. You know, I thought about it. Why? And of course, the big damaging element of all that was the amount of drugs that went down in that period. That was the detrimental side of the '60s mm. that gave the '60s a bad name, whereas really the positive side of the '60s was a renaissance in English society, which was to get away from the old, straight, strict, uh, English, proper way of behaving and let people flee and be, you know so that the beatles could come out and express themselves openly and honestly about what they were feeling and most of the people didn't even know what they were writing about when they wrote the great songs but it was a natural subconscious leaning that was expressing expressing itself Mm. as a need to be liberated and that's why the 60s had such a liberating effect on people
1: talk about new horizons and you you kind of seem to open the door to something when you you worked with uh john john anderson later of yes yeah you know the, the never my love single which has got kind of that that lusher arrangement
2: well you know i was going to record that song before i met john but his voice his voice suited it his voice was never very strong he really didn't have a belting voice but he did have that storyteller attitude, which was what I recognised in him when he was working as a as cleaning up the dishes in the, in the Shaft Club, uh, which was round the corner from the Marquee Club in London. And I said he could come and stay stay at my place because he didn't have anywhere to go that night. And woke him up to getting a job as a producer at Abbey Road. And I told him, and he wouldn't believe me, but then he did. And uh, so I said, "Well, look, as you haven't been writing, how about doing this song?" And he said, "Yeah, okay." So did a really good arrangement, and he did it. And then after that, I showed him some other songs, and I even wrote some. I think I wrote a couple of things with him. His songwriting was very limited at that point, but I tried to. I don't know. I was I was into these storybook type of orchestral arrangements, so there was a song called Autobiography of a Mississippi Hobo, which, which, uh, you know, it seemed like that was a storytelling thing. And uh, I I don't know whether he co-wrote it with me or uh, I just wrote it. And I said, well, could you, as you are Hans Christian, dress up in a sort of monk's outfit and we'll go down to, to St. Paul's Cathedral and take some pictures in there just to get the right atmosphere. I said, you know, if we're going to do some pictures, that would be interesting. You know, if you're, you're supposed to be Hans Christian, the storyteller, I mean, I wasn't reflecting anything that was John because that was the persona that he agreed we could do together. And that was fine with me. I didn't want him to hmm. give up any kind of independent personal ambitions by making him Don a coat that would necessarily anybody would even know that he made the record in fact i never told anybody that it was john anderson years uh, at least 20 years i didn't say anything about him being a singer finally people found out that he was because he must have told them so could i do after that point and uh Hmm. but at the time i said well could you dress up like a monk and he went along with it But uh, You know, maybe he didn't like that, I don't know, but he, he certainly was annoyed with me. And I don't think there was any reason, because when he was the most and out, mm. I was the one who was there trying to help him.
0: Grow tired of you. Never, my love. Never, my love. You wonder if this heart of mine loses desire.
1: did, a, 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 I think it was a, at least a trio of singles with Tim Andrews. There's a song that I like of yours with uh, Tim Smile If You Want To, which is a really good production.
2: Yeah, that was a good pop song. Mm. I mean, not my favourite type of music anymore, but uh, mm. it was very skillfully done. And uh, from what I gather, it was close to becoming a hit. And who would have known that at the time? You know, one would never, mm. if that had been the case, I would have. Probably ended up like one of the Osmonds or something. <laughs> but thank God I didn't, and, and I'm glad that it wasn't a big success. But it was a good song, a good, powerful arrangement and stuff. Mm. I met a guy from Radio Caroline that's an absolute fanatic of that song.
1: kind of immediate when went bankrupt you you formed Dada with Elkie Brooks
2: Media, I don't know whether I based any forming based around immediate forming. Uh, I think it was Pete Gage the guitar player approached me about fronting the band with Elkie to be honest with you that band to me was mm. I don't know I did Dada as an almost um, taking the mickey out of music the Dadaists were people who turned the world upside down. So I thought it was almost, you know, like it was humorous. I don't know, I just couldn't be serious. We we recorded seriously. And I mean, some of the ballads, uh, some great songs, uh, is every man His God about the death penalty Mm. uh, being wrong. And uh, there were some good songs in it. But it didn't have the essence of the soul, it, it, it shouldn't. And I didn't feel that keen on being in the van anymore. Like there was too much backbiting and stuff. Comp- competitive behavior. Don Sheen and I got along really well. And he was a great organist. You know, I didn't really like it. So when I heard that Robert, because I knew Robert Palmer before, before I, I was in Dada, then I heard that he wanted to, he wanted to take my place. I didn't want to say anything, so I just said, well, well done. Elke was left that I wasn't upset, but actually I was, you know, I didn't want to be in the band. Yeah, of course. I never got paid once for that album. None of the songs I never got paid for. I never got the advance. I don't know who got it all, but I certainly didn't.
1: After that, you re- recorded the Passing Stranger album. Obviously, we talked about that briefly. No,
2: no, that was before. Oh. That was before The Average White Man started because there was only McIntyre on guitar, uh, Alan Gorey on bass, Chris Fenny on guitar, Ray Russell was on guitar. Are
1: there any other tracks on there you'd, you'd like to talk about?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, Ode to the Ministry. Took myself to the ministry. To get me exercised, stood in a mile and a mile long too, but it kept me exercised. What's your name? The bookworm screamed, and I said, I must deny any knowledge of such thing as my father lived or died. Where's your brains? The fat man cried, and I said, and it was very warm weird. Eh? The lyrics do not actually, they're, they're just a part of the atmosphere of being down on the door mm. and, and collecting the cash to keep you alive and behaving like you're supposed to behave if you're going to get the help. It's mm. like a, a very strange, and it has this kind of haunting echoey guitar that it actually gets into you. I don't know why, but it does to me. They say that songwriters were the first newsmen because most of the news in England took place through songs. The Battle of This, and you know. So when I call the newspapers up and they say, I'd like like to get a piece on this new album I'm working on, they say, Well, why? 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 I said, Because I was a newsman before you ever even were born. Hmm. Mm.
0: Same as my father live or die? Where's your brains the fat man cried And I said this wasn't fair For you were the one that gave me them So you should know just where So they put me in another queue Called assistance money and dole And the fat man Private space. I call my brain, and the face I call the door. But what is more than privacy from the dreaded bookworm? For worms eat out the minds of men and fill them up with scorn.
1: After that, you have what, what could be described as a a, a lost album, Roots and Shoes. Oh, that was a shame,
2: yeah. That album got destroyed. Well, that was fun because it had the average white band on the whole album. And it also had Glenn Fernando Campbell, the sly guitarist that played in Juicy Lucy. And that guy was the greatest sly guitarist on earth. Oh, yeah. He played the last Joe Copper tour in the States. And... All the show because Joe was pretty at a loose end at that point and Glenn got dumped by the manager, Nigel Thomas without getting paid after selling out all the shows because of his performances and uh, oh, John Russell, he was on that, John Russell was uh, I believe Cat Stevens' cable player so there was the average white man that included mm. everybody And then, of course, uh, what was it? It was a publisher that said they owned my rights when they didn't. And they stopped Warner Brothers from buying the album from me. And uh, I had to come back to England. It was was such a sad thing. So, yeah, it was a shame on the albums and shoots. I mean, there was a song that Rare Bird covered called um, High in the Morning about a musician who lives for his music and. But where does he go to when he's high in the morning? It was about the estrangement of one's life with the world when you live that kind of cut-off thing of playing music, writing music, and being alone at night writing music.
0: Um
1: So obviously, that must have been quite a disappointment. But then Roger Daltrey of The Who came calling?
2: Yeah, um I can't remember how that happened. I think I called him up. Oh, I wanted to use... I only he had a studio in his house. Hmm. So I said, oh, Roger, is it possible to a demo down in your studio? And he said, all oh, right, yeah, come down here. And so uh, I went down there, but the trouble was that I think it was one of one of Forevermore, or it was one of the band uh, that had a van. They drove over his newly laid concrete, (laughs) 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 creating big tire marks. (laughs) And he got really pissed. And then uh, his wife, Heather, said, come on, Roger. I mean, you know, they've come down here to use the studio. Are you going to just send them away? He said, oh, well, maybe not. So I went there and I started playing... um, Hearts right, I think it was, when he went, "I want that for my next album." I, went, oh, "Oh, okay."
0: Hmm.
2: then he listened to more, and he was saying, "Yeah, I want you to do my next album." great, well, really? okay, just yeah. said, know, when, I was originally going to be the new Leo singer, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I'm glad I, I wasn't. There were too many things going on when that album was being made. he was in Tommy. So he would come back from the film studios exhausted. And I, and I would have to do all the vocal parts, which I liked doing. You know, obviously, it was fun seeing with the band and all that. Mm. But, you know, he was burnt out a lot of the time. So you couldn't really... I couldn't get the arrangements that I would have really liked because the guy who was producing it was making sure that all of his songs were really well arranged. Whereas I had to do all of mine myself with people I hadn't even rehearsed. With. So it was a bit hard to get that sounding really good. But the album's still good in the charts. was on the next album, one of the boys, that was closer to the kind of arrangement that I wanted I think they gave Rod Argent the piano playing credit, but in fact actually it was me they released that as a single made it in in Australia and then somebody said to Roger why do you want to be so soppy doing a ballad so Roger pulled it off the American release. As it was going up the charts, <laughs> so it, never, it was never seen, saw the light of day there. But it was going up the charts in Australia and England. I, think. I never got the royalties on any of that stuff or the session fees. Spencer Davis co produced Dancing in the Isles that has that song Manhattan on it. Yeah, so it says. Oh, you've heard it. Oh, great. Yeah.
1: Was that kind of the late 70s, Matt, with Dancing in the Isles, the album and the single Manhattan?
2: Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And uh, how I got I all that together, I was like, I don't know. I, I was. Oh, Spencer wanted to produce it. So I went over to uh, what was it, uh, the Village Recorder. I wrote that song when I first went to New York. It's got, got the experience in the song. It's it really bursts at the seams. That, that song. It's got a thirty-piece brass section with uh, two guys doing all the parts, and we recorded it at Village Recorders. And I was like just playing around on the grand piano in there not realizing that the head of the record label, parent company, was standing with a whole crowd of people behind me. And I finished, and the whole place erupted, and people started clapping. And I went, huh? What the hell? And suddenly, uh, the, the boss said, any piece of paper with four-quarters name on it is going to be taken very seriously by this company. And I got unlimited budget. as said they ended up costing $89,000 to make that album. I was the best players, the waters, singing, vocals. And, I mean, it really was choice to be able to do that. And Super Tramp, the next door, cutting Breakfast in America. It was like a great time in that studio because I knew all those guys from London. So, okay. Wow. I've had a life and sometimes I think it's really bad, but really, it's not that bad. <laughs> I should be happy.
1: Is there anything else we've kind of missed?
2: Uh, One of the first people that um, became a close friend was uh, Snowy White. Great. Yeah, great guitarist. I mean, Pete Green taught him to play, and he has a a really sweet tone to his blues and stuff, and uh, he played on a a few songs with me, one of which is on uh, my... Early years, it was a demo, basically, but it's a really nice song, and he plays brilliantly. And it has Richard and Robert Bailey. Uh, Richard Bailey on drums, and Robert was the bass player. A couple of Caribbean guys. Um, well, Holdsworth, I mean, working with Holdsworth is a dream come true when it comes to ability, because he could hear what I was doing in no uncertain terms. He was very, very sure of my abilities. And to have such a great artist that sure of my abilities gave me the self-esteem to realize that my stuff is not just pop. It's not just any particular genre of music. It's just what it is for the individual song, which I've always wanted to do. I never wanted to be branded into some kind of cubicle that song, Living in the Sky, when he recorded that, he brought his, there must have been about 10 loudspeakers up to the ceiling. He brought to Sound Lab Studio in LA. And he spent about, I don't know, 10 hours doing solos on that. So committed. And he, I suppose he thought that it was the music of the future, you know, where the song was the future about life on a the, on the space station. And to him, that meant to be in time. So and then, of course, he said before he died that he wanted to call his new album, Living in the Sky, and do an instrumental version of it. And I was really thrilled when he told me that, because that was just like a dream come true, to have such a great guitarist do an instrumental of one of my lyrical songs unfortunately, he just passed on. I mean, out of the blue, it didn't make any sense at all. But anyway, he plays on that. And on Reverb Nation, I did a a mix. I became homeless in England because of mold in the walls. And I had to go back to L.A. because I'd already spent all my money on getting the new place. And I couldn't get another one. And there was mold in the walls. So... The NHS has said that they thought I was a tourist holidaymaker using the medical facilities for free treatment, which wasn't true at all. And my doctor told me that she was being stopped from seeing me anymore. So she said, you better go back from wherever you came. So I went back to L.A. and I got all the masters back from the guy I'd stored them with. And he owned all of the equipment from Sound Lab Studios that was owned by Bob Gordio and Frankie Valley and gave them, uh, put them in his house and he transferred all my 24 tracks and 16 tracks to digital. And I did digital mixes of Living in the Sky, Manhattan, all the stuff that, uh, I'd done on 24 track tapes and carried them around with me for 20 years through homelessness, through all sorts of things. And he managed to re- reproduce. He-, he wiped every tape free of dust, dirt, rain, everything. And he managed to run them through the tape machine very carefully and transferred them all and saved them all. So my homelessness in Brighton, where I rented to that place, was the greatest thing that could have happened to me. And that really shows you that, you know, my whole career would not be at the point it is now if it hadn't been for me to return back to L.A. to homelessness. And I was homeless for four months, living on the streets. It was terrifying. But once I moved into the place, I got the tapes from them, transferred, and I was mixing them on a laptop in my my place. And I got them all done and transferred up to Reverb Nation, where you can hear all of the songs in the best possible quality.
0: Looking out from the space station Venus closest to me, stars in swirling motions in an endless sea, tomorrow always comes early, in space where time bends. future just begun living in
1: life with soul would be fitting to close because it's more up to date but looking looking back to that sort of 1960s period and and
2: reflecting on things i think so yeah thank you that that really says it yeah it is it's it's about somebody who's from the 60s and who looks back and sees that you know everybody's greedy pollution is out of control anxiety is rampant You know, I even, I describe myself, and it's a song about me, 2012. I suffer from anxiety because Mm. there's plenty of anxiety. The world's sort of teetering on the brink of, of survival. And we, we are looking at that probably because since the 60s, people have forgotten the ideals of creativity is more important than things. And you you spend your life earning things and actually you feel like empty because you could have been, been creating. You could have created things out of your very depths. That's the only thing that you can take with you because you are the only thing that's important to you and you isn't an identifiable object. It's a, a subject. And that's more important to anybody living their life in a world that's whose destiny, as David Attenborough puts it, is
1: on the brink. Mm-hmm. People can can basically read more and, and listen more at paulcorder.com?
2: Yeah. I haven't changed the site for a while because I haven't been well, but it's got the essence of, uh, of what I'm about. I'm also... Beyond Other Worlds is my autobiography mm. up to the point where I met Van Morrison uh, when I was 15, and I didn't know that I was getting a ride back to London Gosh. On, in their van after seeing them at a gig the night before as them. But I said, uh, I went to a show last night. It was really good. It was a band called Them. So <laughs> the guitarist on the keyboard player. We said, That's us. The chapter is called Us is Them. <laughs> Beyond com. Thank you, Paul.
1: Please keep in touch. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, bye Jason. bye. Bye, Jeff. Bye.
0: He with concerns for his health He suffers from anxiety From the air he breathes and toxicity A world based on consumer greed Success is having more than you need And waste is out of control Instead of living life with soul As war makes life so cold Whatever happened to living with